I want to invite you to turn the book of Philippians. We're in week three of a series uh, through the book of Philippians. And uh, the first week we focused on verses one and two. Last week we focused on verses nine through 11. So this week I want to hop back uh, to verse three and go from there and see where that takes us. But let's start with verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to, God, to all God's holy people, or to God's saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how we are servants and we are saints in Christ Jesus, how we're called to be a people who live with grace and peace and called to be a people who receive God's grace and peace. We give and we receive grace and peace. Uh, grace and peace to you this morning. Where, wherever in your life you need it most, grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll uh, be talking about this a lot more as we go through the series, but uh, as a reminder, this is a letter that was written nearly 2,000 years ago, around 62 AD, from Paul, who is in prison, most likely in Rome, to this small group of Jesus followers in Philippi, which is a Roman colony, uh, where everyone is to declare that Caesar is Lord. And so Paul is making a very bold and political statement when he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is making a declaration, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I thank my God every time I remember you. And so Paul is a man who, who is a, he's a man of prayer. And when he thinks of these people in Philippi, he, he thanks God for them. There is a special relationship Paul has with this group of Jesus followers in this Roman colony of Philippi. Now, the word Paul uses for thank is uh, eucharisto, you meaning good, charis meaning grace. It's a good Grace. This is where we, we get the word Eucharist, which is one of the names we give what we do every Sunday here with the bread and the cup. Uh, it's the Eucharist. It's communion. It's the Lord's table. It's uh, the table of fellowship. Uh, and so Paul says, I, I Eucharisto God every time I remember you. This deep thanks to God for these people. Now, uh, Paul uses this word in interesting ways. Uh, if I can have the next slide. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul says, in their prayers for you, uh, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, surpassing grace, the word grace is charis, and the word thanks be to God is charis. So it's the same word. Uh, and so the English translators had to figure out, wh when do we translate charis as thanks, and when do we translate it 
as grace because Paul uses it for both. And so, look at the next slide. Uh, if the action is from God to us, translators render it grace. If it is from us to God, translators render it gratitude or thanks. Paul testifies that giving and receiving are really so much alike, one word can define both. And, and so for Paul, it's this reciprocal nature of giving and receiving. We receive grace and we give grace. We receive grace and we give grace. We receive grace and we give grace. It's just this pattern that God has written into us, that God's grace comes to us and we just give it back out. And so Paul says, I, I eucharisto, God, every time I remember. Every time I remember. So for Paul, thanks to God is connected to what? Remembering. Remembering. So, next slide. Being a follower of God involves the act of memory. Uh, th this is deeply rooted in uh, the Hebrew scriptures in the Jewish context to remember. God is constantly reminding his people, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out. Do not forget that you were slaves and I liberated you. Remember, remember, remember. Over and over again, Paul is reminding, or God is reminding his people to remember. And so for Paul, this is just hardwired into him to remember, to contemplate, to reflect, to think deeply. Um, in June uh, of this past year, the New York Times ran an article titled, The End of Reflection. The End of Reflection. I want to read you a few excerpts from this article. Uh, the author interviewed a guy named Nicholas Carr, and Nicholas Carr said, finding moments to engage in contemplative thinking has always been a challenge. But now that we're carrying these powerful media devices around with us all day long, those opportunities become even less frequent for the simple reason that we have this ability to distract ourselves constantly. Uh, we, we live in an age of distraction. Uh, distraction has always been an issue in human history, but now we have these smartphones, we have these tablets, we have laptops, we have all these devices that can just constantly distract us. I mean, think about it. What, when are the moments, before the age of these smaller devices, when were the moments for you that you were able to actually just stop and think? You don't have to answer this question, but how many of you, when you go to the bathroom, take your smartphone with you? <laughs> Honesty, I love it. Uh, and so even these moments that used to be just small windows of contemplation, now we can distract ourselves the whole time. Uh, and so we take it with us everywhere. And if we forget it or we don't know where it is in the house, what happens? Panic, anxiety, heart rate increases. Where's my phone? Where's my phone? Where's my phone? Uh, 
we, we live in this age now of constant, the, the constant ability to be distracted. Next slide. Uh, by 2012, Google engineers had discovered that when results take longer than two-fifths of a second to appear, people search less. And lagging just one quarter of a second behind a rival site can drive users away. Now just think about that for a moment. Oh, you don't want to because it takes longer than two-fifths of a second to think about it. But just think about that for a moment. That, that we have become people who expect our devices to just move so lightning fast that if they don't move that fast, we'll just click out of that page and find another one that'll go faster. And so uh, the author of the article continues, that hints at the way that as our technologies increase, the intensity of stimulation and the flow of new things, we adapt to that pace. We become less patient. When moments without stimulation arise, we start to feel panicked and don't know what to do with them because we've trained ourselves to expect this stimulation. New notifications and alerts and so on. We've trained ourselves to expect this stimulation. Uh, as human beings, the things we engage in, the practices we engage in, the way we train ourselves will shape and form us. Science has proven this. Our, our brains literally change related to the things we engage in. And so to untrain that part of the brain and retrain it in a different way takes discipline and a lot of work. Next slide. What this often translates to in the discourse of the internet is demand for immediate and perfunctory hot takes rather than carefully weighed judgments, whether they're about serious or superficial matters. Uh, can you imagine if in prison in Rome, Paul had a smartphone? I wonder if we would have this letter if he did uh, with that level of distraction. Um, Paul says, I, I thank my God for you every time I remember you, every time I reflect, every time I contemplate on my time with you. I, th I thank my God for you. So we've, next slide, uh, we've moved from this to this. I, so I did, I did Google the thinker with cell phone, and I, I almost put one image up, and I kind of wish I would now because I'm telling you about it, but there was one of the thinker with a cell phone on a toilet. <laughs> I, I wonder what it looks like for us to reject the addiction to distraction and to find spaces of silence 
and solitude and reflection that lead to thanking God? Uh, What does it look like to set the cell phone down and just experience God's presence with us, reflecting on God, reflecting on the work of Jesus in our lives, reflecting on the people God has brought into our lives, reflecting on the things that give us cause to give thanks. And then we engage in thanking God for those things. Uh, What would it look like to slow down? Uh, I wonder if you're one who commutes, uh, what are some practices you could tie into your commute? That even though you're driving, uh, it allows you space to reflect and give thanks, whether it's turning the radio off or the podcast off or whatever it is, uh, and to just reflect and give thanks. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I pray with joy. Now this really struck me when I was studying this this week uh, because Paul's in prison. Paul is sitting in a Roman prison and he says, I pray with joy. Paul has not allowed his circumstances to rob him of his joy. Uh, instead, he prays with joy. So I, I wonder, a couple of questions for us. Um, let's go to the next slide. What brings you joy? What brings you joy? I, I, I wonder if uh, we do take this space to reflect on God's presence with us, which leads to thanksgiving if it reveals those things for us that bring us joy. Uh, what brings you joy? Uh, this week, later this week, Thursday, is in this country, we celebrate this holiday called Thanksgiving, right? Uh, The scriptures seem to indicate every day is a day for Thanksgiving, not just one day. I think it's great that we have a day that we actually call that so that we can focus on it in that way. Uh, And uh, maybe you have a practice around the Thanksgiving table of what what are you thankful for? Uh, What if that practice got embedded into everyday life? What are you thankful for today? What brought you joy today. And then um, what robs your joy? What robs your joy? What, what steals your joy away? And how do you replace those things that might steal your joy? Now, granted, their life happens. And so there's certain things we just have no control over. Uh, but, but there are certain things that we know rob our joy Uh, and and we have some semblance of control over whether or not we're going to allow that to happen. Uh, What robs 
your joy. Theodore Roosevelt said, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. So, who in your life do you look at and compare yourself to? Because you are uniquely you. God created each of us in God's image and likeness to be like God and yet with the unique flair that he has put within each one of us. And so there's only one you. And so anytime we look at someone else and see what they're like or what they look like or what they have or what they've accomplished and we compare ourselves to that, it will rob our joy. Because now we're not focused on, God, who have you created me to be? What have you created me to be like? What are you calling me to do for your kingdom and for your glory? Now we're looking at someone else and saying, why don't I have that? Or why am I not like that? Or why don't I look like that? Comparison is the thief of joy. And what it does is it causes envy, and anxiety in our lives when we compare ourselves to others. You are called to be the you that God created you to be, not someone else. Uh, what brings you joy? And what robs your joy? Paul always prays with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so this term partnership is uh, the Greek word koinonia. It has to do with fellowship. It, it, ha it has uh, financial connotations that they have partnered with Paul financially. Uh, they have partnered with Paul in the advancement of the gospel in uh, declaring that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. They have partnered with Paul in the sense of building community together and doing life together. Uh, and so Paul prays with joy because they are partners with him in the movement of the gospel in the world. And so Paul prays with great joy because of this partnership, this community, this fellowship that they have together. And Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So uh, next slide, began, good work, completion. Um, Paul is doing something brilliant here. He is tapping into something that has been going on since the creation of the world. He says, the one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Began, good work, completion. Where do we hear these words first in the scriptures? If you want to turn there, I'm going to Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the what? Beginning. beginning. In the beginning. God began something. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
He who began something carries it on to completion. He who began what? A good work. What does God declare creation every day? Good. It's good. In the beginning, God created and that it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. Uh, chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were what? Completed. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God began creation. He carried it on as a good work, and then he completed it. Now, the, the understanding of completed here doesn't mean it's done, because creation keeps moving forward, right? It's always changing. It's always forming. It's always growing. There's always this cycle of death and new life, death and new life. And so what Paul is talking about here is that uh, God, at some time in history, the, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, was hovering over the darkness, was hovering over the chaos, and out of that darkness, he brought light. Out of that chaos, he brought order. And that is the same work God is doing in you and in me. It's a journey, it's a process that God is doing in us to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so that work of completion is to get rid of all the brokenness, all the heartache, all the broken desires, all the sin patterns, and complete that good work in Christ Jesus. But the union that we experience with Christ just keeps going and going and going and grows more expansive and more beautiful through all eternity. In the same way that creation just keeps going. Uh, scientists tell us that the universe just keeps expanding. It just keeps going. And we, we just really have no clue how big the universe is now because it just keeps expanding, keeps getting larger, keeps going. This is the work God is doing in us, cultivating us into ones who just continue to grow and expand in our union with Christ. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Next slide. Another letter of Paul's, he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That one verse just is so chunk full, isn't it? Uh, this same God who began a good work at creation, who let light shine out of darkness, who's doing that same work in us, that same light is shining in our hearts. Just consider that for a moment. The same light that was spoken 
into the universe from the beginning is shining in our hearts. We have the same creative, divine force of light within us that spoke the universe into existence. That's powerful. What if we really believed that? What if we really tapped into that energy, that light, that life that is within us, the creative light of the universe? This is what God has shown in our hearts, the same light that's shown in the darkness from the beginning. Uh, one last verse in Colossians. You have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. So. If we are to take this process that God has invited us into seriously, this, that he has began a good work in us and he is carrying it on to completion. There, this is God is doing this in us, but we are invited to partner with God in this work by taking off that which hinders, releasing those things that rob us of joy, releasing those things that distract us, releasing those things that keep us from being focused on Christ and the person Christ is creating us to be, that keep us be, from being renewed in the image of Christ. And so there's this pattern that God invites us into. It's dying to self and rising to new life. It's taking off the old self, taking off the ego self or the false self, whatever you want to call it, that which is not who we were created to be, and putting on the new self, the true self, being renewed in Jesus. This takes practice. Take off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed. So I want to return to that idea of training, practices. What is it that renews you in Christ? What practices renew your mind, renew your heart, renew your being in the way of Jesus that make you more and more the person God has created you to be? And if you're struggling to determine what, well, what practices would be helpful for me, let's just simply return to, I thank my God every time I remember you. Uh, I'd simply invite you to start there. Schedule it. Put it in your calendar. For these 15 minutes in the morning and these 15 minutes in the afternoon, no devices. I'm going to simply remember and reflect and give thanks. Uh, I guarantee you something will begin to shift within you as these practices increase and the practices of distraction decrease. As you increase the practices of reflection remembering, contemplation, giving thanks, 
something shifts. And we are now being renewed in the image of Christ. Rather than being deformed by the things that distract us, we are being formed in the way of Jesus. Another practice is one that we engage in every week. It's communal, and it's experiential, and it's encountering the risen Christ as we come forward and dip this bread in this cup. For many of you, this has become a vital part of your week. Uh, For some of you, you may feel like, you know, doing this every week just feels like too much. And so I simply want to say, if doing this every week feels like too much, if it's taken the sacredness away from it for you or the specialness away from it for you, there's no requirement to do this every week. When you want to do it, and experience this, we invite you to do it. If that's every other week, if it's once a month. Part of the beauty of doing this every week is, man, as I've gotten to know Bay Marin over the last five years, you all show up like twice a month. So you, so you might miss this uh, if we just do it once a month. And, and so doing it every week, for those of you who show up twice a month, uh, you have the opportunity to encounter this practice where we engage the cruciform life, where we engage this way of being together as a community and remembering. We do this practice to remember. Jesus says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And so this morning, as you come forward and take this bread and dip it in this cup, uh, I simply invite you to remember and Eucharisto. Give thanks. God, thank you for the gift of Jesus, for the gift of life, for the gift of the cross and the gift of the resurrection and the gift of the life of Jesus in us. God, fill us with that life. Make us more and more people who engage in practices that form us to be more like you. God, empower us by your spirit to let go of, to release the practices that distract us, that keep us from being the people you're inviting us to become. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.